Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Hunter from TreeSwift. She's the Chief Operating Officer or COO, so it's a treat to have her join us. Elizabeth, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me on the on the podcast today. Yeah, I know. It's awesome to have you. I think both you and I are excited to have this conversation. We have some mutual acquaintances that have both been maybe guiding us or or pushing us or maybe trying to force a collision path. So we finally got in to do this. And I know before talking, I understand you're expecting. So this is a crazy time in your world. So maybe this is like, you know, I've done this podcast and then, uh, you know, maternity leave's coming, but congratulations on that front. But thinking of that, I'm just curious to know how you got into the space, your journey, because I believe you're based out a filler in that area, University of Pennsylvania, mechanical engineering background, some work with spine robotic work, and now you're with TreeSwift. So maybe for our listeners and viewers, tell us your journey on how you came to be where you are at TreeSwift. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so like you said, I'm based in Philadelphia. Um, actually, how I found my way here physically to this location is I um, came here for school. So I um, studied mechanical engineering and robotics at University of Pennsylvania or Penn. Um, and my background is really as a, as a technologist and as a robotics engineer. So I'm not a forester by training. And in fact, I think um, forestry really kind of found me. It was like a series of really serendipitous events um, that kind of led me to uh, meeting my co-founder uh, for TreeSwift and kind of founding the company together a few years ago. But how I got there um, is... Originally, I was really involved with robotics research. So after completing my undergraduate in mechanical engineering, I pursued my PhD at Penn in robotics. And so my work was really focused on autonomous systems and and, um, robot teams, uh, but at very small scales. So I was actually... Uh, working in the lab, toiling away uh, late into the night, kind of day after day, working on um, very small scale robotics. So think about a robot the size of a caterpillar um, or even smaller. Um, So insect scale or even cell sized uh, robots. And so I was developing new sensing methods. So how we can actually take measurements from the environment using these small robots how we can get them to move or their actuation and how we can actually control them. So getting them to go from point A to point B. And this type of robotics has a lot of um, biological applications. So I actually worked on this really cool collaboration with Penn Dental Medicine where we we were using these robots to actually clean biofilms off of teeth um, and uh, using them to sense various like environmental signals. And so all while I was doing this, uh, my co-founder Steven uh, was working on robotics for a different application, still kind of in nature or natural systems, but he was working on drones, um, looking at counting fruit in orchards. So actually estimating fruit yields. And uh, we had always kind of talked about kind of how, how, you know, robotics, uh, you know, we we had always kind of talked about really kind of getting the technology out of the lab and like really seeing the impact kind of in the real world. And at the time I was actually on the tenure track faculty routes. Um, I was interviewing actively for faculty positions, just, you know, envisioning what my lab would do and had this whole path. And uh, Stephen asked me to co-found the company with him. And, um, and then that, that kind of took it from there. And uh, we, you know, there, there's kind of this, this leap in going from, you know, the robotics, the small scale robotics and the robotics for the apple orchards. Um, we actually had an opportunity kind of while we were still students at Penn to actually go down and put some of our, our robots in um, Southern Pine forests um, and kind of take a look at what, what they could do down there and kind of 
kind of the the company took off took off from there wow very very cool so amazing with like the i'm gonna i'm gonna call it the little robots because that's probably as sophisticated as this guy's gonna get with them but i'm curious was did that interest stem from something when you're younger like you had the remote control and you had these robots that are fighting i think there's a tv show where you build your robot and they're like trying to kill each other in a cage or something but where did this interest in in the tech side or the engineering the robotic side come from yeah, so I had I had always kind of been interested. So I kind of growing up. Uh, so my dad, I, I call him, you know, a self-taught engineer. Like I grew up, uh, he's an entrepreneur. Um, and he I kind of grew up kind of watching him kind of fix various like machinery and other things and was just kind of really fascinated by like mechanical systems and just like the way that they worked. Um, and then kind of as, as I kind of got, uh, grew up and kind of went to school and kind of learned about um, the spaces, the little robots or these kind of small scale critters, um, was just really fascinated at how, um, you know, like man-made systems can really interface with natural systems. So how we can use, um, you know, really engineered systems to study these natural systems, to interface with them, to help <clears throat> diagnose kind of various um, diseases or kind of pathogens in the environment. And I was that that kind of interplay between kind of the organic systems, um, kind of this nature, and kind of what we can really kind of engineer and build. Um, I was just always fascinated by it. And so now it, you know, it started off in kind of that little robots realm. Um, and now we're doing something similar, but very, very different in terms of the scale of the robots at TreeSwift. Yeah, for sure. And, and we'll dive into that that shortly. So I assume out there is probably um, the world's proudest dad, you know, daughter with a PhD, you know, entrepreneur, startup, just killing it. So that that's uh, that's amazing. So in my household, um, I've got a 12. I'm looking up to the sky. Normally moms know this information better than dad. So I got to try and get it right. I got a 12 year old. Yes, a 10 year old and a five-year-old but the older two um they've discovered the the marvel world so we just finished iron man and I think thor and whenever there's like people kissing they're like covering their eyes but i'm curious like as as a phd in robotics is is your house like tony stark's house where jarvis says like hello elizabeth welcome home and and doing all this stuff or is is your home kind of like every normal person so i'm just curious given that like is there you know something you come home there's a glass of wine that comes on the the robot with the happy face there um share 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 what that how robotics has permeated your everyday life at home if it has i think um that's something i i uh i i i wish you know it's it's funny they're kind of now that i'm kind of preparing for maternity leave our business development manager was joking with me the other day and she's like, oh, Elizabeth, in all your spare time, you should have created a machine learning model of yourself uh, while you're on leave. Um, but yeah, didn't didn't quite get around to, to working on that um, in all of my spare time. But what's <clears throat> really funny is, um, you know, my house uh, was, was once kind of taken over by some robots. I actually finished my PhD at the very start of... Um, the pandemic. And so I remember kind of as, as, as everyone kind of experienced this, you know, mass evacuation from their workplace or other things, I had like two experiments that I had to, you know, finish up before defending my thesis. And so um, I think that, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the very, uh, you know, the, the basement laboratory that everyone like thinks about when they think about, you know, uh, a scientist kind of toiling away. I actually had had to recreate some of the some of the robotics setup in my basement. Actually, um, about two two months before defending, so I remember kind of going to the lab and kind of grabbing some of the equipment. Um, and you know, I was working on magnetic 
uh, magnetic actuation of these like very small, small robots. So it was all these magnetic coils and other things. And I was able to finish the control experiments. So at one time, I did have a basement laboratory in my house. I, um, I knew it. I knew you had a Tony Stark basement all set up. There you go. That's amazing. I'm sure your partner loved that, having uh, the man cave commandeered by by research, uh, all in the name of uh, of science, right? So so super cool there. So I'm, I'm also curious, you mentioned your co-founder, just out of interest, again, you know, having gone through that journey, I'm sure entrepreneurship from zero to one has gone in a perfectly straight line. Everything's gone according to plan for our viewers where Elizabeth and I are, are chuckling here on that front. But did you know your co-founder before? I know you mentioned you, you were talking, but was that just through grad school or, or was there an earlier connection? And and depending on that answer, um, how did you overcome like getting started? Because you're still a student, right? So you're trying to balance trying to finish the PhD. And I'm sure somebody was like, Elizabeth, you have to finish this thing. You can't like a lot of people just go up in the startup mode and forget about grad school. Um, but maybe tell us about the early formation of Tree Swift. Like what was the the magic sauce or the secret ingredient that kind of lit that spark for, for both of you? Yeah, no, that's, um, it's beginnings are really um, special and, in, in, in kind of beginnings of companies. And I think, um, there, there was definitely the ingredients of the right team and the right time. So my co-founder, Stephen, so there's actually four, four co-founders. Um, so my co-founder, Stephen, he's Tree Swift CEO. Um, I met him um, in early 2015. And so he he was actually uh, working with me on uh, some projects actually related to these uh, little robots. Um, and we wrote some papers together and kind of collaborated on work. We went to uh, conferences together. And so, um, you know, we were always friends in the lab and uh, kind of collaborators and we're always kind of uh, working on various ideas and talking about, I think the one common thread there was like talking about how we actually got this technology that we were working on out kind of into the world um, and really being used. You know, we see robotics really being um, pervasive in so many different industries now from construction to mining, to logistics, to healthcare, um, that really, I think that, um, you know, we're at this really special time where we're seeing a lot of the commercialization of, of robotics work. And so, um, you know, he, uh, he and I kind of were, were talking kind of more towards the end of my PhD, um, about, um, you know, starting a company together. And then we also, uh, brought on two other co-founders, really fantastic individuals, um, that are, that are also have a pen connection, um, from, uh, from robotics as well. So we started off as a team of, um, four, uh, robotics engineers kind of with various backgrounds. Um, so I've talked about my background, but Steven's background is really in autonomous systems too, and aerial robots and controls. And then our CTO has a fantastic background with self-driving cars. So he actually worked on self-driving cars before coming to Tree Swift. Um, and uh, really kind of that that kind of like DNA kind of kind of shaped shaped the team and 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 now today uh, we're a team of almost um, forty people um, and it's not only roboticists anymore but it's um, uh, we have an incredible director of GIS we have foresters on staff um, really fantastic operations people um, so it's really the, just this this awesome mix um, of 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 folks that we've that we've built since then yeah it's amazing so from four to 40 and i believe you guys did a seed round raise so went through all that um process as i'll call it which is a, a different uh different exercise but um so thinking of that like why don't we jump in maybe that bridge between forestry you touched on it that you know a bit of ag tech and then now you're in the forestry side so maybe introduce us or, or i'll say me to what 
tree, tree, tree swift does and, and what problem are we trying to solve and what's the cool tech and then we'll kind of poke at little pieces to the extent of what you can share since i'm sure uh by now a lot of people have perked up in their chairs and said i really need to learn about the big robots now and although still curious about the little robots but tell me tell me that connection what was that that moment of saying you know what we're gonna leave the the fruit side of egg or maybe the viticulture side and go full bore into forestry maybe there was a nudge uh, but share with us what that that spark was to to go into forestry. Yeah, so there there was a bit of a there was a bit of a nudge. So kind of through again a serendipitous connection, kind of a friend of a friend, um, actually uh, through through Stephen's network, um, we met uh, really an incredible individual um, who uh, really worked for, a works for a large, um, landowner and manager in the South. And so he kind of saw some of our, our videos of drones flying in, in orchards and was like, Hey, you guys, have you guys ever tried this in a, in a pine plantation? And the answer to that was, was no. And so we, at that time, we kind of went down and took some of our robots um kind of into the forest and just kind of we're looking at you know what could we really do here and we had the opportunity to really meet operational foresters managers speak with them about um kind of their pain points and problems they were encountering and um what that really led us to was uh robotic timber cruising so right now what, what TreeSwift does um, is we've scaled our technology and our solution. We're actively providing uh, timber cruising services and carbon cruising services across the Southeast and Pacific Northwest of the United States. And so what we, um, what we really kind of built or what that nudge kind of um, from, you know, really a friend of a friend uh, enabled us to do was build out um, build out a specific sensor um, that is specifically designed to measure trees. And um, really kind of our, our kind of edge in our technology is that we're focused all underneath the canopy. So with our timber cruising solution, um, you know, oftentimes when people think about our sensors, which are composed of LIDAR and cameras and kind of many other uh, sensors combined, um, you know, people kind of are, are very used to the view of, of measuring a forest from over, over the canopy. But we kind of think about the, the gap between what's underneath and kind of what's over top. And robotics is really um, a unique solution, kind of the, the problem of kind of getting the sensors underneath the canopy. That's a problem uniquely suited to robotics in, in our view. Um, and so we started developing these sensors to measure trees. Um, and so now we're deploying those sensors at scale and um, really cruising um, thousands, tens of thousands of acres of, of timber in the Southeast and Northwest. Very cool. Very cool. So if, if I heard you correctly, the, the, the IP or the innovation is in the hardware in terms of how you're stitching some of these things together. And then the, the AI, I guess, uh, machine learning or deep learning, um, and you're out there cruising. So super cool. Um, are these aerial drones this gets put on, or are we talking a Boston dynamic dog that can dance and flex its legs or, or what type of drone platforms are you mostly uh, using these days? Yeah, so uh, we actually designed our sensors to be platform agnostic. So we started off um, uh, really putting them onto an airframe. So um, I think that's that's actually been one of the really interesting things about our technology and our approach to development is that all of our hardware and also all of our software stack um, has been developed at TreeSwift. And so the hardware specifically has been made for forestry to operate underneath the canopy. So when we started off and um, mounted our sensors to airframes, to drones, um, those were drones that were designed in-house uh, by our engineering team um, and specifically were designed to fly underneath the canopy. 
And then since then, um, we've actually now developed a new system where the sensors are mounted on a uh, backpack-based system. And this is something we're really excited about because with the drones, the, drone, the drones are, are awesome in the sense that there are um, very kind of uh, specific use cases where the drone, using the drone really shines like certain forest types and, you know, it's very efficient to use the drone um, to collect uh, the data needed to, to produce a, a timber a cruise report. Um, but the backpack has really been an interesting innovation for us. It's the same sensor that we've put on the drone, but now in a backpack s system and anyone can, can use this. Um, and so we've really found the, the backpack to be a very uh, scalable solution. So, um, you know, we've heard we've heard a lot from our, our customers uh, specifically that um, it's, it's pretty challenging to find uh, timber cruisers these days and people to, to sure. cruise timber. And so uh, one of the, the things that we really are excited about and one of the missions of our company is to really increase access on who can cruise, um, to really approach and solve some of these labor force problems as we scale. And so this backpack system has our sensor, it can be walked through the woods um, in order to collect all of the measurements that you would receive in a timber cruise report. So diameter at breast height, total height, height to live crown, uh, really rich semantic information about the stem. So um, the uh, basically any defects, so if the tree forks, if there's a crook, if there's a sweep, um, and the height at which those defects occur. Um, and we can also map very precisely where the geospatial um, location of each stem is. Um, and so this kind of goes into the software, the software piece too. Very cool. So when you think, when you say you can map the position, is this like super duper high precision, like tens of centimeters or that's what you're thinking yeah so very cool so is this so i think of back in my days where i had to carry this you know this lidar portable backpack and in principle is great but the thing weighed like 90 pounds so is this like you know the uh the the, the good life or whatever gym uh gold's gym workout with your backpack or is it something a little bit more reasonable for those that are more bound to an office chair these days What's really, you know, I think that's, that's, this is a great question, Kevin, because a lot of people ask this is, you know, how much does this backpack weigh? You know, am I, are you carrying like a bowling ball back there? <laughs> and so one of the, one of the really um, great things is because the sensor was originally designed to be flown on an airframe and had to be very light. Um, and so, you know, the, the drone, like the tree swift drone is actually very, it's a very small airframe. So it's, it's a lot smaller than uh, many kind of commercial off the shelf drones that have been traditionally used in, in agriculture, or even, you know, some forestry applications too. And so it purposely had to be designed to be light. So it's only a couple of pounds um, that's added oh, wow. to kind of a backpack frame. So it's it's actually um, it's actually really light, yeah. um, and I think that that's really important as we think about you know still kind of going out and doing field work and being on plot. It's actually something very um, kind of specifically we've designed into the the cruiser user experience. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. So glad to hear I, I don't need to start a 26 week boot camp to to use this backpack. Although I probably should do the boot camp uh, irrespective of that. But thinking of other things, just channeling the the listeners, the viewers, um, how long can this thing run? So I guess what's on the UAV, there's a power component. Um, you've mentioned that that you've custom built the the airframe or the, essentially the drone. So is this something that lasts like hours or are we still kind of in that traditional wheelhouse of, you know, 45 minute flight and then we've got a ET phone home, get a new battery pack and and go uh, go again. Can you share more about um, the the specs, I guess, of, of how one might actually use this? Yeah, certainly. So 
um, kind of how we're cruising today in this, I guess, like the specifications are really kind of informed in, into how we're cruising. So, so currently, you know, all of our cruises, you know, rely on a, on a sampling plan. So similar to how traditional cruising is done, you know, our force inventory manager lays out a plot grid and we sample at various points. Um, there are, are a variety of reasons why we took that approach, but really kind of one of the um, one of the really kind of fundamental uh, key things in our development has been really giving our industry a solution that fits within systems um, fits within systems today, which is in, you know increasing adoption and making it easier to use. And so when we think about plot layouts um, for, you know, the drone, you know, for sampling with the drone, um, we're able to kind of capture multiple plots, four to five different plots within a 10 minute period of time. Um, and, you know, our operators kind of go out with enough batteries to, to last, you know, the day, kind of a day of work. Um, but what is really great about our backpack solution also is, is again, because kind of all of the power specifications and everything were kind of initially designed to be on a drone, you know, the, ba the backpack, you know, can be run kind of for a full, full day of work and then at night kind of changing things out and, and resetting for the next day. Very cool. Very cool. And, and so thinking of, of doing this work, um, is this at edge processing, like you're collecting remotely sensed data? Is it being processed at edge or is it more of a data collect, bring it home and then some magic automatically spits out what you actually need? What can you share on that front of the the workflow? I, I'm really trying to figure out, I went camping once and then my backpack was always the heaviest. And I realized that everyone was putting the cartons of wine into my backpack and I didn't realize this till like the fifth day. So that's why I'm kind of answering, asking these questions of, are there hidden backpacks I got to carry, even though this thing is only a few pounds? And like, if I got to bring data drives and suddenly I'm back mm -hmm. to, I got to do the 26 week boot camp before I get to use this thing. But can you explain or maybe share in terms of that, that pipeline? How do we actually get to the final um, cruise uh, outputs? Yeah, of course. So really just an overview of our process is, um, you know, if we're going to go out, do a cruise and we're, 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 you know, actively cruising projects um, that, you know, might be 10,000, 15,000 kind of acres um, at a time. So thousands of plots um, kind of within, within a project. And so how we think about it is we, we go out. So true swift operators currently go out, they perform these cruises. So the data collection, um, and the field work, and then we take that, um, and we process it through our true swift software stack. So all of the really rich LIDAR data, the camera data. So we don't just use, um, LIDAR. Um, this is actually something that we've we found um, kind of within within our work and kind of our analytics is that LIDAR is not necessarily enough to kind of get the full spectrum of what is required in a really robust tree list and inventory. So we take uh, many different pieces of our sensor information and then we push that through our TreeSwift software stack. Um, and so that includes the ladder processing, it includes many things about associating sensor data to um, that point cloud, we can track individual trees kind of through our processing, and um, be able to one of, one of the things that we're really able to do that's that's really special is you know, if a tree has a particular defect and maybe the DBH needs to be measured at a different location on a tree because of a butt swell or something like that, we're able to know exactly why that DBH measurement was kind of taken at a different location because of that, that per tree defect. Um, and so kind of going back to this, this process, we have a various like data offload process and we have cloud processing and we utilize many different things, but it all kind of stays, this all is within the TreeSwift software stack that we've developed. Very cool. Very cool. So I, I'm also assuming with all the, I call it the auto magic that's 
That's what my life has been reduced to the the magical things that happen behind the scene. But I'm assuming that this pipeline's pretty fast. Like if someone goes out, collects the data, we're not talking days or weeks for this auto magic to happen. Probably hours. The processing time it it, it varies kind of per project and kind of um, how much. Um, kind of how much is 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 being collected. Kind of our goal is to always um, kind of get that, um, uh, you know, get, decrease that as much as possible. But right right now, it's it's kind of on par with typical kind of cruising data turnaround times. Um, and yeah, as our algorithms kind of develop, that that processing you know gets better and better. For sure, for sure, very cool, very cool. So, so thinking of of the the tech stack before we kind of poke in it, because I'm I'm curious as a tech person, a tech person to learn more. But I'm curious about how the forest industry or community or ecosystem, whatever word we want to use, how they've received it. Like you mentioned, you're working in the U.S. Uh, south and then the Pacific North Northwest. Uh, are there some funny stories or crazy stories? Cause you're coming from robotics. You understand that very well. I've got a problem. I'm applying technology. We're pulling this data, these, these metrics out of this, this, this data set I've collected, but has it been a straight path? Have foresters jumped on board immediately or, or have you gotten a bit of the, what are you going to replace my job or, you know, there's no need for boots on the ground. Share some of your experiences if you can, in terms of uh, that journey to, to get to that point where, yeah, we're actually doing trials. We've got customers who are paying their bought in. I'm, I'm assuming there's probably maybe been a little bit of head scratching, uh, maybe resistance. I don't know. Well, I think, I think one of the things that's really interesting about forestry is, you know, this is, you know, TreeSwift is not the first uh, company to kind of come and think about using drones um, in in forestry and to and to kind of communicate that communicate that value to customer customers and that's something we we recognize and I think one of the things that kind of we've found is that kind of a lot of these technologies um, that are sometimes brought into forestry come from agriculture. Um, and it's not really a one-to-one correlation at all between what works in agriculture and what works in forestry. And so I think the unique thing about TreeSwift is that we're all in on forestry and we have been from the very beginning. Um, and so what that has allowed us to do is really work with our early adopters and our early set of customers and not only give them a front row seat, but actually uh, really empower them to, um, you know, they are, you know, the hero along this technological journey, really driving kind of what we build at TreeSwift. Um, and so I think that's that's been really our approach to innovation as a company is is that we're we're customer first, and especially with our early adopters, listening to them understanding some skepticism, which is completely understandable, especially when we're kind of, you know, going into the woods together and, you know, describing, hey, you can replace a D-tape and a clinometer with the TreeSwift sensor package. And it's just as good and it's just as accurate, but hey, you can get so much more rich information uh, from this sensor that you can now kind of... um, reimagine what's even possible in in forestry and so I think that um, you know certainly I think this this happens a lot with with new technologies kind of regardless of the industry is that of course it's met, met with some skepticism but really the job of the entrepreneur the job of the technologist is to really listen to the customer understand where they're coming from and make sure that these solutions are are designed um, to be really accessible, kind of actionable as soon as possible, um, and transparent. I think that's one of the things that we've focused on a lot as a company is, is working with our customers so that they understand our processes, our approach, 
Um, and so we've we've actually one of the things we've we've developed is a really robust auditing process of our technology. Um, so anyone can audit our data. You don't have to have like a specific TreeSwift widget to do it. Um, and that has actually been pretty pretty powerful that you can audit our data just like a, a traditional cruise as well. Very cool, very cool. So that transparency aspect you're bringing in and ensuring people can see and touch and play. You, you touched on accuracy and precision. So I suspect there's probably some folks who might be listening, viewing, wondering how, what does that mean when you say that? Is this, we're kind of hinting, I guess, together that um, in our conversation that we can do it equally good, if not better than the traditional method. So obviously there's going to be people out there going like, yeah, but what does that mean, Elizabeth? So I'm assuming again, with your early adopters, you've done some validation and tests and what's that, what, what's that thing you would share in terms of appeasing or, or, or squashing, or maybe putting that question of like accuracy of precision to rest? How, how good is it? Yeah. So this is, um, and, and, um, Forgive me that they're not in metric units, uh, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have done validation studies. We've done audits of uh, hundreds of trees, um, kind of um, really looking on, you know, looking at our, our projects, especially in the Southeast. There's some type of audit that happens um, regardless, kind of on anything that we we cruise, we do internal audits and kind of internal studies all the time. And so still when we're thinking about, you know, about treeless, really DBH and height are the, the core kind of metrics, fundamental baseline. If you don't have that foundation uh, kind of in your, your inventory kind of then, then everything else, you know, it's great, but everything really relies on that DBH and that height. And so we've really focused on um, not only collecting the data, but really the, 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 the data and the metric side has always come first for us, making sure that our software stack is really robust and designed um, to, to produce the, the best quality data possible. Um, and so kind of in our studies, what we found is that we're within 0.1 inches um, kind of margin of difference with traditional measurements and within one to three feet on height um, generally. So um, we really kind of like to think about this as a difference because kind of when you're within that range, who's to say that the clinometer, the tape is kind of more accurate than the tree swift sensor. Um, so we kind of think about it as differences that way. Yeah, for sure. That's that's a great point, and you know, an objective measurement versus a human one, which depending on uh, how many Bud Lights might have been had the night before, could completely influence um, the measurement. So, so very cool. One thing I wanted to get your 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 input on before we kind of shift maybe more more broader, because it sounds super cool uh, in terms of technology. But from the business model point of view, is are you thinking? Um, you're providing the cruising service to forestry companies or eventually are you thinking we're just going to sell the technology and we've got this platform to ingest and then spit this out as a service to you what can you share on that front for folks that might be kind of scratching their head going like is this something i buy or is this something i hire yeah no that's that's great so um today how we operate is we we operate um, as a traditional kind of cruising contractor. So if a customer wants to perform a carbon cruise, a timber cruise, kind of our process works pretty much the, the same way. So our TreeSwift team goes out with our backpacks or our drones and performs the cruise. Um, we collect the data, we push that through our software stack. And then at the end, our customers receive a database cruise report um, that fits within their systems. Um, I think what's uh, really exciting for us as we think about kind of the future and kind of how our business may evolve is we we really think about this being um, you know our under canopy uh, data really being a, a layer in in a, in in the stack of kind of 
um, all of the other data that exists. So aerial LIDAR, satellite, um, we really like to call this um, kind of the last mile problem for forestry. So in, in logistics, you know, when a package comes to your house, you know, there are these um, kind of last mile warehouses located around where, um, you know, that package may have gone on a plane, on a, on a, on a truck, kind of to get multiple trucks to kind of get to uh, close to its final destination. And then the last mile problem is then actually how does that, that package get to your, get to your house. And so when we think about all of the layers um, of data across the landscape from satellite to aerial LIDAR, um, aerial photogrammetry, and we think about kind of penetrating that canopy layer and looking at underneath the canopy, that's something that we're, we're really excited about that I think our technology is really uniquely suited to kind of provide. And so we really think about kind of all of these data layers being connected. And then, and then ultimately, you know, another thing that we think about as our business evolves kind of beyond, um, beyond what we're doing now is again, kind of empowering foresters to use our hardware. And so using, using our hardware as, you know, another tool in their, um, in their toolkit um, that really makes timber cruising more accessible, uh, cheaper, it's more efficient, um, and so really kind of getting our hardware kind of out there at scale for other people um, to kind of be using and collecting the data um, while we really kind of um, continue on that data software stack at TreeSwift. Yeah, for sure. Well, the beauty of it is, as, as some folks who might be listening with that entrepreneur background, it's sometimes, as you said, listening to the customer, what they need and pivoting and course correcting uh, accordingly. So so very cool. I'm curious if we shift gears a little bit and say, from a technology point of view, I'm dying to know what gets you up tomorrow. Like, again, you're coming from hardcore robotics, as we joke about the little uh, robotics, you probably could have gone a, a health road and, you know, tried to cure cancer with little, you know, robots at, at, at that nanoscale. But from a technology point of view, what what uh, if you look out that one year, maybe three year horizon to start off? Are there things that you're watching? And I know you're not the CTO, so the CTO might be listening. Going, hey, that's a question for me. But again, all of you, you're small, you're 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 tight in the line. But what what what's out there now that you're kind of like, hmm? It's like this is something I'm keeping an eye on, and Forrester should keep an eye on as well. Yeah, I think we're we're really living in um just an incredibly exciting time and i think one of the one of the things i mean this is this has been you know kind of uh you know these various kind of like buzzwords or things kind of people people talk about um is is really kind of data has infiltrated kind of so much of of what we experience kind of what we see kind of when we think about um, just like interacting with various platforms, I mean, how much kind of data inputs um, various companies receive from kind of our cell phones and just kind of interactions every day. What makes me excited about data kind of, um, you know, apart from like what has been traditionally talked about is, and this is more so again, like in, in in nature and kind of in forest is just this idea of connected kind of connected forestry a connected landscape um one of the things that is really exciting is thinking about other kind of sensing mechanisms in um kind of in nature beyond uh physical sensors or geometric sensors so like LIDAR and images and so like some of these other sensors, they're very much like physical kind of geometric, they capture geometric information. Um, and I think what's really interesting is kind of layering on other types of sensing that provide, um, you know, different inputs. So whether it's a signal from Southern pine beetle or mountain pine beetle, um, and that would lead to kind of 
earlier diagnosis of um, maybe an infestation and how all of these kind of data sets can, can work together um, in order to kind of protect, preserve forests or also inform better forest management. Um, and I think as we're seeing a lot of trends towards carbon and the carbon market, there's really kind of been um, some nudges um, for kind of more robust uh, data sets and, and kind of looking at um, measuring forests in different ways, which really I'm really excited about. Yeah, very neat. And, and so you mentioned carbon and timber cruising. Is there one side of that equation? Well, I guess it's not really an equation, but is there one uh, demand side that you're sensing is pulling you more? Um, because again, with the carbon world, it's uh, it's crazy. And, and as someone who's raised, that climate tech space is crazy as well. Are you seeing any patterns there that you, you, you think you might get pulled one way sooner than than the other way? Yeah, so I think that um, kind of when we when we think about our measurements and the measurements that we provide, one of the things that's really um, exciting for us is that you can you can actually perform a timber cruise and a carbon cruise in parallel. Um, so with our data sets, um, you know, there's really nothing preventing us from uh, performing a, a carbon cruise if one of our, you know, if one of our customers, you know, orders a timber cruise, we can still work up the carbon carbon data from that without having to go back a second time and doing like a whole other cruise. Um, so I think it's it's more so kind of thinking about really the the value of this data to the landowner and how they want to use it to make informed decisions about um, kind of their forests and the property that they manage. I think that is, that's the way we we think about it, is just a kind of equipping them with kind of more information and more tools and uh, so that the, they, they can make the decisions kind of um, for their business that they think is, is best. I think one of the really exciting things about our data in carbon, as I mentioned, that we can geos we geospatially locate all of the stems of the trees. Um, and this is to a very accurate map. So like the relative accuracy of, of our maps and our forestry constructions are centimeter level precision. Now the absolute accuracy of that kind of um, with um, kind of put back into like a global frame um, that's a bit a bit different, but the relative accuracy, just tree to tree, um, is centimeter level precision, and we're able to track again um, uh, all of the metrics back to that individual stem. So it really provides a virtual way um, of being able to see to interact with the forest um, that kind of a a straight treeless database doesn't necessarily provide the the window into it. And so I think that um, there's certainly use cases where that's valuable in timber, um, but then in, in carbon, of course, just with the um, compliance and just the the various degrees, um, you know, of, of, of uh, you know, the protocols and the methods, it has to be um, even more kind of transparent and and monumented of of what gets measured in those cruises. Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm curious to know. We I was curious to see if the word digital twin would pop up. And I'm I'm wondering, are you intentionally avoiding that term because we're kind of talk you're talking about that. I'm I'm basically reconstructing this digital twin of this this plot. It's a virtual plot. So I'm curious, are we avoiding that intentionally because it's a buzzword or, or are there other reasons in, in your seat that maybe it means something differently to you? No, I, I don't think I'm intentionally avoiding it. Or I think, you know, I think uh, one of the things um, that's, that's interesting about it is, 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 yeah, when you think about um, like our data or virtual reconstructions, it really is a digital it is a digital twin of the forest, but I think that there's there's kind of there's kind of so much there's there's more kind of to it when we think about the data that we're producing. So it's not uh, simply a kind of one to one twin map 
a lighter point cloud, but we have images of every tree and images at various angles of the tree. Um, and we can kind of put all of this into this, uh, you know, a, a viewable format for foresters to kind of look at this from from their desk. Um, so no, I mean, it is it is a digital twin. I think there's just kind of a, a few more layers um, kind of in there as well. For sure, for sure. So I'm going to kind of bring us full circle. And I'm I'm loving this conversation. I think we could spend hours talking, but we're not going to pull a Tim Ferriss podcast and create a three hour and 45 minute podcast where you got to break it into chunks. But thinking of your journey, I'm curious, and we touched on uh, just in general workforce and um, you know finding talented people to cruise but i'm kind of curious to pivot maybe away from that and just get your thoughts on your journey as um, a woman in forestry a woman in technology a woman in entrepreneur um, has has that has that journey yielded any interesting insights into um, barriers for women getting into technology again with three girls myself we often hear um, well actually that's not necessarily true I know at the university level I think there may be more women in engineering now than men per se but I'm just curious on your side um, because forestry itself traditionally you know boys club type of thing and and you and your team you're bringing technology but what does that journey mean like from from your seat as a woman innovator in technology in general yeah no that's that's great it's also um just uh great to hear about kind of your family and and I think um kind of all along my my journey I've, I've always kind of um you know, I've been involved with um, kind of various uh, women's groups in robotics and engineering. Um, now in forestry, I love when I'm at a forestry conference and there is a, um, you know, a, a working session or a social hour that is, you know, women in timber or um, a luncheon. I think uh, one of the things that those events and groups do I know the Women's Forest Congress is going on right now. I think it's an incredible inaugural event. Um, but one of the things that this just, uh, this does inherently by kind of, um, you know, having these events and platforms for women in technology, women in forestry is just kind of increasing the visibility of women. So there, there are women all across in forestry and engineering. And I think one of the best things um, that that kind of we can do in our industry is really elevate um, and amplify those women's voices. So it's um, really that women are seen kind of doing these jobs all across of, um, you know, forest operations, management, from the technology side, uh, cruising. I mean, there are women doing these these jobs. And I think one of the best things that we can do is just kind of amplify and, and echo that. And I think that I see kind of more um, platforms and various programs kind of coming out that do um, exactly exactly that. Um, I'll give a shout out to Daniel Atkins Land and Ladies Program, um, which is an incredible kind of woman landowner education program. Um, and so there's just kind of more and more of these these programs coming out. And one of the one of the the things that I love. Um, doing is like when we have on-sites with customers and um, kind of go in and, and teach them about our technology. I love teaching um, kind of other women foresters and, and folks at our customers organization just about our technology too. I think it's um, it's great to build those connections as well. For sure, for sure, 100%. Last question for my side is maybe less about forestry, but about innovation in general. Um, you know, you're not in Silicon Valley, you're up in in the Philadelphia area. What's that ecosystem like? Again, it's probably more of a Kevin Lim self serving question. Just learning more about that that ecosystem. But but what can you share in terms of what what that community is like in in your region? Yeah, so uh, Philly and generally the uh, you know the Northeast, it's uh, a really great um, uh, kind of uh, kind of springboard and like nurturing community to. Um, early stage technology companies. Um, so, so TreeSwift is actually our, our, our headquarters. We have a, a large office kind of in, um, in a building kind of with other 
um, robotics and, and early stage uh, companies. Um, I think one of the things that has been really great too about starting a company right before the pandemic is that we've inherently um, kind of grown as a remote company. And so um, we have folks working everywhere from Silicon Valley to Huntsville, Alabama, to North Carolina, Georgia, Philly. Um, so we, we've really kind of expanded kind of our geographic footprint in that way with a lot of our engineering kind of still happening in, in Philadelphia and kind of the core engineering team here. Um, but it's, it's been, it's a really rich community kind of just with um, uh, innovation and uh, vibrancy. I think we see kind of a lot of these um, cities uh, across the nation really kind of supporting early stage technology companies in a variety of ways and whether that's kind of incubators or kind of maker spaces and other things. Um, it's been, it's been really great um, to kind of have um, our initial start in a place like Philly. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. And and I, I suspect you probably represent today's modern startup where, you know, there's an HQ, but the workforce is distributed just as he said, as a nature of uh thank you COVID for that part, I suppose. Um, so as we wind down, uh, as I said, we can go on forever. There's like probably 50 million questions in my head that I want to ask, but as I said, we're not pulling a Tim Ferriss podcast. Um, before we, we we close out, I'm curious, if we look out 10 years, what are you excited about? Are we into that Elon Musk world of the neuro, whatever thingamabob that's plugging into our brains? 10 years out, what does that world look like uh, from your seat? Yeah, so I, I think that there's, again, like this couldn't be um, a more exciting time. I, I'm going to kind of go back circle back to maybe the beginning of our conversation, uh, which is really uh, where I think kind of technology, the interplay between technology and, and nature. And this has been a theme that I've been really excited about for some time. Um, and if we think about the, um, you know, there's this concept of the bioeconomy and it's basically how really biology um, can be used as um, building blocks for um, kind of various man-made systems. This is nothing new in forestry <laughs> because uh, that has been happening using using a using trees um, for construction materials has been happening for some time. But kind of what I'm I'm talking about here is is more so um, just really using. Um, technology and developing kind of biological systems to um, kind of more so integrate uh, kind of with our everyday life, whether that be textiles, um, kind of various um, electron, like bioelectronics, other things. And then, and then kind of the other, the other side of that coin is then how can we actually then use um, man-made systems, mechanical uh, systems like new sensors and robots to kind of study biological systems in in new ways and kind of what can we learn about them. Um, so I think that this whole era of the bioeconomy and kind of using technology, driving that forward um, and kind of nature-based um, kind of solutions that might be engineered a bit is something I'm really excited about. Yeah, amazing. That's that's awesome to hear. I'm chuckling inside because classic entrepreneur, just the art of the possible. There's all these other things, you know, Elizabeth is already thinking about wanting to solve beyond just uh, the tree, tree swift uh, mission that that you're on. So I really appreciate the time. Love this conversation. Thinking for our, our viewers and listeners, what's the best way that they can get a hold of you? Is it email, social, website? Give a shout out for uh, tree swift. How do they get get in touch with you? Yeah, definitely. Um, visit our website at treeswift.com. Um, also our LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn is a, a great social to get in touch with us. And I can always be reached at hello at treeswift.com. There you go. So three ways to get there. And treeswift is one word if you're you're doing the good old LinkedIn, but hopefully you know how to use the Google 
everyone by now. Um, so, hey, thanks so much for joining. I had learned so much, to be honest with you. My brain is now firing. Definitely appreciate you carving out some time. And I, I know you're not too far off between before maternity kicks off. So going to wish you all the best of luck in that new adventure. And I look forward to meeting you in person one day and, and exchanging more uh, fun conversations. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Good stuff. Bye for now. Bye.